electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead today. Another day, another big downgrade. This time it's Moody's downgrading several U.S. banks and warning more could follow. And while the banks are under pressure and retrenching, private credit continues to step into the lending breach. In fact, we'll speak with the CEO of one company which says they're well positioned to benefit. Plus, Big Pharma, a bright spot. Shares of Novo Nordisk soaring on favorable results from its weight loss drug trial. We've got the details and four names in the food ecosystem that stand to gain and lose the most amid the obesity drug craze. And we look at one business segment critical to growing the economy, but increasingly unaffordable for many, childcare. The CEO of Bright Horizons joins us today with a stock up more than 45% so far this year. First, though, let's talk about these down markets. Dom Chu with the numbers. Down and red is your dress and my tie, Kelly, is what it comes down to. So if you look at the picture overall, we're hovering kind of towards the lower end of the trading range today. The Dow Industrial is currently 35, 183, down about 290 points or about three quarters of 1% to the downside. The S&P 500, the broader measure of the markets, at 44.79, down 39 points or about nearly 1% as well as you can see there. Just for context, it has been a down day overall. At the highs of the session, we were still down 20 points and down 54 at the lows. And I'll call your attention to just one number. We're not really there yet, but watch 44.21. Some traders talking about that as a target that they're watching right now. That's the 50-day moving average for the S&P 500. We haven't been kind of towards these levels in terms of variance from the S&P 500's 50-day since going back to the Memorial Day holiday around that time. So watch that. The Nasdaq composite down one and a quarter percent, 169 points, 13,825, the last trade there. Kelly mentioned the banks. Very much in focus with the Moody's downgrade. A lot of them, as you might suspect, seeing some downside pressure. Among the names that have been outright downgraded by Moody's, M&T Bank, Webster Financial. You can see they're down about 2.5% for those two. Capital One and Citizens Financial, among some of the names that are on negative watch right now, those stocks down about 1% to 3%. And even the S&P 500 Regional Bank ETF, ticker KRE, is down 2.5% as well right now. So watch the fallout from that Moody's report and downgrade. And then Kelly also mentioned, The two really, really bright spots in the market today come from drug makers, Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk, both known for diabetes-related medications. Eli Lilly with a quarterly earnings report that came in better than expected, better forecast coming up down the line. Novo Nordisk, I'll lump these two together. They both make drugs that treat diabetes or obesity in some way, weight loss, that sort of thing. With Novo Nordisk, their results of a study late stage say that there were Govi drug could reduce the risk of a severe cardiovascular event like heart attack or stroke by 20%. That was better than expected. Eli Lilly currently has a drug in Munjaro, a diabetes-related medication, that is getting approval right now for possibly using for weight loss at some point down the line. So watch Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk. I'll show you one more chart, Kelly. The two of these guys on a year-to-date basis, up 42% for Lilly, Novo up 40%. Both of these guys get gold stars because, Kelly, both of them hit 
Record highs in trading today on that craze over obesity drugs. I'll send things back over to you. All right. We'll have more later on. Dom, thanks. Now to that blockbuster news from Moody's. The ratings firm out with a big warning about liquidity and capital for some larger U.S. banks as a result of higher rates. And we've already seen banks tighten lending standards as a result. Now, that in turn has led to private lenders stepping in to fill the void. In fact, billionaire real estate developer Don Peebles just told us how private credit helped one of his projects get fully funded. Take a listen. The competitors in this process for this loan were all private credit. In the past, it would have been a mixture of a, of a national global bank, a, a couple regionals, and one or two um, private credit um, lenders. And, and, but we have done deals previously with private credit, but by and large, the bulk of them have been with global or, or regional banks. Well, my next guest partner firm provided the credit for that deal. Peachtree Group is a private equity firm that invests in commercial real estate. They've completed hundreds of transactions valued at $9 billion. For more, let's bring in CEO Greg Friedman. It's great to have you here on set with me. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Oh, man. But private credit is the kind of phrase when I first heard about it a few years ago, I wasn't even sure exactly what it was trying to describe. And it felt like an area where there was a lot of pension fund money and things like that. And now all of a sudden people talk about it as if it's a common sense alternative to going to a bank, even small firms. How big has this industry become? Yeah. So this, you know, this industry's really boomed over the last, you know, really since the GFC, the great financial crisis, you know, just given the fact that, you know, banks historically have been a big part of financing commercial real estate. And as it relates to private credit for commercial real estate, you know, it wasn't as significant going back 40 years ago, but you've had this whole entire consolidation across banking, which has made private credit, you know, more impactful. But then fast forward to today, you know, private credit is, uh, you know, becoming a bigger piece just given the dislocation. But even without this dislocation, private credit really has grown like 5x over the last 12 years. Wow. So currently it's In, about a billion five, or way, excuse me, about 1.5 trillion. 1.5 trillion, a, yeah. a pretty big sum. Peachtree, I assume you guys are, are based in Georgia, are pretty active down there. Um, one of the reasons why banks are always traditionally involved in commercial real estate is because they're the lenders, but also they know the market. You know, they're close to these sure. uh, players and all of that. Private credit, I always felt like was a step removed. Maybe that's no longer the case. How active? I mean, it's not like you have loan officers, you know, out on the streets. How do you solicit and source and place and underwrite these kinds of deals? So we, we actually do have a team of originators that are out looking for transactions. Wow. So just taking a step back, you know, we are a private equity firm. So we invest, you know, across commercial real estate assets, you know, with a large focus towards the hospitality industry. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we have about two and a half billion of equity under management across about six billion of assets, but we are vertically integrated. So part of our ecosystem, we have the, a lending platform called Stonehill. Hmm. And so the Stonehill team is out there originating, underwriting, asset managing, servicing all the debt investments that we're making. And that's our private credit vehicle. Yeah. And so we have the ability to go do direct loans and take advantage of what's happening in the marketplace with the, the void being left by banks. But then we also have the ability to um, pivot and actually like during the pandemic, we were one of the biggest buyers of debt from regional banks, community banks that were looking to offload wow. um, loans given their you know exposure to hospitality. You're like a, a high, you know, you're so similar to a bank in some ways. Obviously, you don't have the same capital requirements, but you're also similar to you know other kinds of investment firms. So, um, do you think that this allows you to offer uh, funds at, at better rates, or what? What is your competitive advantage in the marketplace? Simply the availability of capital, or is it is it also the cost of it? Sure. So in this market that's dislocated, the you know the, being able to execute 
execute and have capital available is huge. Um, that's a big advantage. But more importantly, we really understand because we are we have a 360 degree just view of the marketplace, given the fact that we are vertically integrated. So we own, operate, develop, lend to commercial real estate. So we really understand the issues that different you know ownership groups face, how what it takes to operate assets on the commercial real estate side. And so because of that, we're able to really structure loans that are flexible and really meets you know, the needs of our customers, which are these you know, owners of commercial real estate. Yeah, and I mean, some different examples. I mean, you've, you've had you know, loans in Mesa, Arizona, hotel conversions in Florida and Huntsville, a mobile home park, um, you know, activity near Detroit and in Troy, New York. I mean, you've really done kind of a lot of different things. So I, I guess just tell me how you think the economy and, and um, lending is doing right now as we're all concerned that this pullback could manifest in slower economic activity six or nine months from now. Definitely. And it's, I mean, it's obviously created within in, you know, commercial real estate, you know, it's obviously created a pullback. I mean, there's less transaction volume occurring because we don't have a efficient lending environment, although it's great for us because we are filling that void. And there's $1.9 trillion of just commercial real estate loans maturing between now and 2026. Um, but there's, you know, there's no question this is going to put further pressure because, um, you know, banks today, when you look at regulated banks today, they're, they've already pulled back like 75% of what they were lending compared to last year wow. to commercial real estate. And that's going to put, you know, further pressure on just activity and availability of capital. So groups like us will benefit from this, but it will definitely, um, you know, it's definitely going to impact the environment. Have you been through a down market before? I mean, in the sense that when we, we worry about uh, banks' exposure to commercial real estate because we're ultimately worried about depositors. In your firm's case, what's the contingency plan? for if you lose 20 or 40% because some of these loans go bad? Sure. And we've been through, you know, multiple cycles. Um, so, you know, as a firm, I started my company back in 2007 before the great financial crisis. We've been through the pandemic, um, which we have a large exposure to the hospitality industry. True. And it was the largest hit, you know, industry. Um, so that industry was really tested through that period of time. Our, our loan book was tested and held up extremely well. So, you know, we feel very confident just based on how we underwrite, how we structure our loans and how we end up funding our loans internally. You know, we feel very, you know, we feel very much that we're protected and we don't have some of the same challenges that the banks have. Well, maybe we need to start doing a, a private credit loan officer survey so we can have a better grasp on what's really going on out there. And the Fed is certainly starting to pay more attention. Greg, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Greg Friedman with Peach Trade. Speaking of commercial real estate, new data shows delinquencies for a key part of the market are on the rise, and that could be the next shoe to drop for some banks. Diana Olick is here with the details. Diana? Well, Kelly, office is a major component, component of commercial real estate stress right now, but it's not actually all of it. And that's what I want to show here with new data from TREP. Overall, delinquencies in commercial mortgage-backed securities are rising, even when you take out office, hitting 4.16% in July. When you put office back in, the rate is 4.41%, and that's the highest since the end of 2021. A big chunk of it is defaults on hotels in San Francisco, but four out of the five commercial sectors saw default increases. Only industrial continues to do well. Now, to office, where CMBS delinquencies have more than doubled since the start of 2020, 
2022. They've now hit 4.96%. And many of these loans haven't even come due yet, which is when they often go delinquent because their values are plummeting. For office properties that have already shown signs of distress, that is missed a loan payment or a maturity date, values on newer properties, they're down 52%. And for older properties, that is pre-2000, they're down about 60%, according to TREP, whose senior managing director, Manis Clancy, told me today the CRE distress will leave marks on some banks. Kelly? Yes, Diana, thank you. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. One of my next guests is a buyer of the regional banks here, even after the Moody's bank downgrades, even in light of the commercial real estate problems. Joining me is Mark Avalone, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors, along with CNBC contributor Jeff Kilberg, who's here on set with me. Welcome to you both. Mark, uh, the KRE, I mean, that. oh, man, just don't tell me it's leveraged. Well, we talked about the KRE for the past two months, and it's had an amazing run. It's True. just up more than 15% in the past month. So it hasn't been a bad place to be. My thought on, on the regional banks is th- there's nothing new in this report. We are aware of the problem in office. We are aware of the higher cost of deposits, and that's legitimate. I think no sector is better poised for expense reduction and mergers than the banking sector. And it's the one area where even the Biden administration can get behind aggressive merger and cost-cutting activity because we're overbanked and it's long overdue. So as these pressures mount, we expect well-managed regionals to be adaptive and not stuck like a deer in the headlights. Okay. So, Jeff, I don't know if you've been dipping any toes in this area um, or, or if you have any thoughts about the Moody's downgrade. Look, obviously, the major averages are on the ch- taking on the chin today. Well, I think first and foremost, Mark's right. They were late to the party. I think the rating agencies, by and large, they're archaic in nature. It's 2023. It's not 1983. So They're think, still relied upon. They, you know, whatever all these, in, these firms were talking to, and they said, well, I only invest in AAA, or I invest in B or I invest you know, they're still used. They are, but they're not as impactful as they used to be in yesteryear. So I look at the other side of the prism of trading. Yes, you're utilizing these rating agencies to help be more tactical. When to profit take to Mark's point. But at the end of the day, I just don't think it's as impactful. I even look at, you know, what we saw with Fitch, you know, back last month. So I think the rating agencies are a little bit overblown here. But there is reason here technically to understand. And Dom hit it earlier when you see this back and fill trying to get to this 50-day moving average. But the bigger picture, this banking sector, yes, you look at Bank of New York, you look at Truist, some of these names, they're getting hit on the chin today, mm-hmm. but they've also had a nice little run. So this is volatility. You have to understand this is a higher beta sector, which is going to have more volatility as we see interest rates move in a historic manner up 500 basis points. Is the market getting choppier? Let's look at the VIX. I know you know it better than anybody. And I'm thinking about Tom Lee's warning from a week or two ago as well about maybe it's going to be a little little tougher slog here. Everyone knows we're heading into a historically kind of vulnerable time of the year. It's a, it's a great question. You talk about volatility and I am not wearing a red tie. So let's be clear. So I'm cautiously optimistic. But when you talk about the VIX, look at the VIX, which is measuring implied volatility. Those are the expectations for the S&P 500 for the next 30 days. Where we just came from, Kelly, the 52-week low in realized volatility, and this is a little wonky, but realized volatility is actually what the S&P 500 does on a day-to-day basis. So that was at 7 that means less than 40 basis points or less than a half percent. The market's been slowly moving. Hmm. Last three trading sessions, we've seen the VIX above 16, kissed 19 today. So now you're seeing expectations of these 1% moves, but this is not panic. We are not seeing people go out and buy in protection. The trajectory moves higher, but I think this is actually very healthy consolidation when you see it come back down to its 50-day moving average after testing that 4,600 level, Kelly, which we talked a lot about being short-term resistance. All right. So, Mark, let's turn back to, to some of your picks. We mentioned the KRE, obviously. Uh, that's the fun one because it's so controversial and, and dramatic. Some of the others, though, I mean, you've got Apple, you've got Microsoft, Alphabet, NVIDIA, Oracle, Meta. Do those names ever come out of the portfolio? 
No, no. I think they're here to stay. And I think since they make up part of the, the index in a big percentage, just about everybody owns them anyway. Look, each one has its own story. And I do like the fact that Apple and Microsoft have pulled back a little here. That straight line run up was causing concern. It might even continue. And that's going to create opportunities for value minded investors to buy great companies at better prices. The story with Meta, and we haven't yet heard it, is we have an election year coming up, and it's going to be huge, huge advertising dollars. Google will also benefit from that. Meta's had a huge year this year, and it's rebounded. But looking into the 2024 election cycle, I think we're going to break all sorts of records for ad spending, and they're they're both very well positioned for that cycle. Yeah. Where I think you have to be considerate, Mark, is how you own those tech darlings, right? And we own them in an equal way to manner. So I think owning them in an equal way to manner makes more sense because what you saw in 2022, that market cap weight really can cut into your portfolios. I'm going over to Short Hills, New Jersey to talk to the folk at SkyPath Wealth Management because there's nerves. There is emotion in this marketplace. But I want everyone to remain calm because when you talk about the leadership we've seen in 2023, Kelly, the tech leadership, I think it persists because the tenure should stay under 4%. And that's been the guiding light. No doubt about it. The 10 year note. Two quick things I want to mention before I let you go, Mark. You do like Disney. You know, you like Paramount. But but Disney, you do. Is this an opportunity for people here? For long term patient investors, I'm not going to bet against Bob Iger. He came out of retirement. He didn't do that to soil his stellar reputation. It's a tough landscape, but all the bad news is out. And the last I checked, we're supposed to buy low. Buy when there's blood on the streets, and I think Disney is going to be poised longer term to benefit from great management and good leadership. All right, so then let's move on to one that I don't see on the list, but if I'm not mistaken, we were talking about at the beginning of the year, was that defense? You know, we thought at the time it was going to benefit from bipartisan support. Ukraine was bringing people together, um, but the stocks are still struggling. It seems as though maybe budget in D.C. is trumping everything and has people concerned. Well, I think there's, well, two names that, highlight in that space. One that's done very well is Boeing. It's one of the largest True. members of the defense sector ETF. So that was a winner. Raytheon had a single stock out of the blue event. They had problems with some engines. It's going to cost some money in the short run. I don't think it's a structural change to the great company like Raytheon and future um, demand for their product. So I think for a counter trend purchase, investors could use defense as a hedge against tail risk events. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad place to be. Boeing certainly hasn't. I think Raytheon was more of a single stock issue, and they're two of the three biggest holdings in the defense sector ETFs. And I'll give you one quick one. Lockheed Martin, been a laggard, down 6% all year. So right. it kind of fits that narrative, Kelly. So owning a name like that, I but think, is essential. You, you still feel comfortable owning it when it feels like the stock is telling you, despite all the great narratives we could tell and all of the positive you know, tailwinds, that there, it's just this isn't their moment. This just isn't. There's too many headwinds. But I guess. that was the exact narrative for Boeing. And now Boeing's on a breakout. So I think you have to be patient in some of these names. I think you have to own them when the rest of the folks don't want to own them. That's the beauty of trading. There's a buyer for every seller and there's a seller for every buyer. That's what they say. You know, <laughs> you got to be greedy when others are fearful. Uh, Mark Avalon, Jeff Kilberg, thank you both. Really appreciate your time and your thoughts on these markets today. Thank you. Coming up, child care spending accounts for more than a fifth of a family's annual income. Even a former Fed president says we've got to make it more affordable if we want to keep growing the economy. So what will it take to bring down costs? We'll ask the CEO of Bright Horizons about that next on the heels of their second quarter results. Plus, we're following the pair of pharma stocks hitting record highs today. Later on, we'll look at the impact the obesity drug boom is having already 
on the food ecosystem and consumer staple stocks. And as we head to break, here's a glance across the markets where the Nasdaq and Russell are neck and neck as the worst performers today. Unusual bedfellows. The S&P down only three quarters of a percent, 243 point drop for the Dow and the 10 years back above 4%, even after that super strong three-year yield top of the hour. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to the exchange. Dow's down 250 points as it continues to reel somewhat from the Moody's downgrade of several kind of super regional banks. We saw bond yields moving as well on that. Tenure briefly went below 4%. It's back above that. Now NASDAQ is down 1.15%. Beyond Meat is plunging 16% today after missing revenue expectations, citing weak U.S. demand, having its worst day since May, and now down 95% from its all-time high of $240 a share. Meantime, every name in the KRE Regional Bank ETF that we were just discussing is negative, with the group tracking for its worst day since June. First, Bancorp, Wafed, and Axos Bank are among the worst performers, with 3 to 5% declines. But as you just heard, our last guest was a buyer. And regulators are at the same time also fining about a dozen global banks more than half a billion dollars for, quote, widespread and longstanding failures to maintain internal communications and records. That includes allowing employees to use unsupervised side channels like WhatsApp and Signal. Wells Fargo, the biggest U.S. bank name, racking up more than $200 million in penalties. Those shares now only down about 2% today. BNP Paribas, Sockgen, each fined $110 million, while Bank of Montreal, or BMO, was fined $60 million. Full details and the list of banks facing fines is over at CNBC.com. Now, the soaring uh, cost of childcare is getting more and more attention as politicians hope to keep women in the labor force and the economy growing. Former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan highlighted this issue on our program back in July. Take a listen. I would love to see us reprioritize or increase the priority of educational attainment, zero to five, the whole ecosystem, skills training, secondary education. And I think we've let that lag a bit. Yeah, but you... I mean, just real quickly on this, do you throw money at the problem? I mean, how do you fix it? Well, teacher salaries is part of it, full day versus half day pre-K, uh, child care that's affordable. Well, as costs have risen sharply post-pandemic, parents are now spending roughly 20% of their annual income on child care, according to Care.com, compared with the 7% experts say is sustainable. For more, I'm joined by a CEO who runs a child care company and whose stock is up more than 40% year to date. They just reported a slight beat on the top and bottom line, but lowered full-year guidance. Let's bring in Stephen Kramer. He's the CEO of Bright Horizons. Stephen, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Describe for us a little bit how your company works. So uh, 
Back 35 years ago, our founders recognized that uh, there was a real challenge for working parents as it related to accessibility, affordability, and ultimately the quality of childcare. And so starting back 35 years ago, we started partnering with employers who had a vested interest on behalf of their employees to invest in childcare. And so uh, through the capital that they provide to build out centers, as well as the ongoing subsidy, we have the ability to serve working parents uh, who really have that added benefit from their employers. Yeah, I, I think actually our parent company is one of them. So how does the benefit work? Does, it, does the employer and the uh, customer split the cost effectively? Yeah, so uh, Comcast is a client. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Uh, so we have clients of our child care center business. And in that regard, uh, we have on-site centers at uh, more than 300 uh, sites across the country for employers. And essentially, the employer is responsible to build out the site, typically on their campus or in their building. And then they provide typically ongoing subsidy to offset the cost of high-quality child care for their employees. In addition, like in the case of Comcast and uh, nearly uh, 1,100 employer clients, we have something called backup care. And that's really when an employee has an intermittent care need, often caused by a breakdown in their care arrangements, and that employee has the ability to bring their child to one of our centers, or we can send a caregiver to their home for that uh, for that day. Yeah, the shares are up 46% this year, as it seems that more and more uh, people are turning towards uh, needing this kind of support. The only thing I can see being a real long-term threat is if we start to offer, you know, universal pre-K or something to, to that effect. The cost of getting the kids from zero to five years old is astronomical and for a lot of parents unaffordable. Yeah, so the reality is that um, I and certainly Bright Horizons believes that investment in childcare, whether it be through employers or through government, is positive for working parents. Um, and so universal pre-K is an example of that, where there are some uh, municipalities around the country that offer that. Uh, New York City is a great example of that, and we actually participate in those programs. Um, when we look outside the United States, we operate in the UK, Netherlands, and Australia, and they have forms of government-supported childcare, and we flourish in those environments as well. And so from the perspective of uh, what is good for Bright Horizons, certainly more employer support is good for Bright Horizons. But in addition to that, we would welcome government support. No, I take your point. Actually, universal pre-K would be better because then the government would just pay you and it'd probably be a lot less competitive. And they'd probably, pay, it'd be like college uh, where it costs, you know, $50,000 a year, but somehow no one is paying. My, my question though is why has the cost gone up so much the last couple of years in particular? Is it labor costs that's driving that? Because we've all noticed it, not at your centers per se, although I'm sure it's part of the overall trend, but anecdotally, um, most of the providers, we've seen annual costs go up by several thousand dollars. Yeah, so delivering high quality child care is expensive, right? And so ultimately, Bright Horizons has always looked to invest in their teachers, in our teachers. And so uh, that comes at an expense. And so our view has always been that employers are the remedy to trying to keep costs down for working parents. Uh, certainly, we have had to raise tuitions as we've accelerated our wage investments. On the other hand, uh, it's really important uh, to make sure that we're providing the best experience uh, for young children, given that 90% of brain development happens in the first five years of life. You can't put a price tag on that. 
Question about um, sort of both the cost of it, but also the high turnover that people sometimes experience. And listen, your earnings speak to the fact that you do have some cash to throw around. Could you raise wages, you know, maybe become an industry leader, for instance, and, and thus reduce turnover? Um, just talk a little bit about how hard it's been or might still be to find, you know, qualified workers. Yeah, so uh, it certainly is challenging. It has always been challenging to find high quality early childhood educators. That's been our history. That's been the sector's history. And so our belief has always been to hire for attitude and train for skill. And so one of the most important innovations that we have brought to the industry is uh, the Horizon Teacher Degree Program, where someone who works in a Bright Horizon Center has the ability to earn their four-year degree completely free with no out-of-pocket expense. And so we are trying to increase the number of early childhood educators in the field. And for us and for the field, that's a really important element to it. Wages are certainly important, and we have continued to professionalize our field and increase wages. But we believe that growing our own has always been the best solution. Is there anything that can bring the cost down at this point or could keep it from not rising as, as quickly? Look, I think that um, wages continue to increase, and the largest component of any childcare organization, and certainly Bright Horizons as an example, is uh, labor costs. So the early childhood practitioners that are doing the heroic work in the classrooms um, are the beneficiaries of the wage increases. And at the same time, um, you know, that obviously has to either be offset by increases in parent tuitions, or in the case of Bright Horizons, we have really uh, important uh, relationships with our employer clients that allow that to buffer some of those increases that would ordinarily get passed on to parents. Interesting. Well, it certainly is heroic work. <laughs> we all we all recognize that. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope to check back in soon. A real pleasure. Thank you. Stephen Kramer with Bright Horizons. Still to come, it's Telecom Tuesday with the announcement of a major multi-billion dollar merger in the space. We'll tell you what billionaire Charlie Ergen, the chairman of both companies, is saying about the deal and the recent underperformance of Dish. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The federal grand jury that indicted former President Donald Trump in, in D.C. is meeting again today. This could signal that the special counsel's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election could add more defendants soon. Trump was charged with four felony counts last week, and the indictment detailed the role six alleged co-conspirators played in the, in the scheme. There is speculation that some or all of them could be criminally charged as well. The Biden administration can enforce its regulations on so-called ghost guns that from the Supreme Court today in a five to four decision, the regulations are aimed at reining in privately made firearms that are difficult for law enforcement to track. The order puts on hold a ruling by a federal judge in Texas who had blocked the regulations. And Americans are pulling money out of their 401k accounts at alarming rates because of financial distress. 
Bank of America reported that the number of people making hardship withdrawals during the second quarter surged 36%. The banco also saw a drop-off in average uh, contributions, Kelly, to the accounts. Back to you. Too bad. Uh, unfortunate to hear. Tyler, yes. I'll see you shortly. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk are hitting record highs after some positive news around their obesity drugs. We'll get Wall Street's reaction next and look at the impact those drugs could have on the food ecosystem as a number of consumer staples names are at 52-week lows today. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Obesity drug makers are posting huge gains today after key results from a trial that can impact whether insurers and employers decide to cover these pricey weight loss drugs. The data showed that not only does obesity drug Wegovy help people lose weight, it also reduced the risk of heart attacks and strokes by 20% when compared to a placebo. Those economics could help insurers and employers justify the high monthly cost of these drugs. And it's sending shares of developer Novo Nordisk up as much as 17% earlier today. Eli Lilly also up more than 13%, partly in sympathy and partly after it also posted stronger than expected earnings and a guidance hike. It's drug Mountjaro. It boosted profits for Lilly last quarter. Now, it's just the latest buzz surrounding the industry that Morgan Stanley expects to reach $54 billion in size by 2030. And amid that surging demand, the firm is also looking at the impact it could have across the food and beverage space. Here to talk more about that is Pam Kaufman. She's an equity research analyst at Morgan Stanley. It's great to have you here, Pam. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And is this effect already showing up, do you think? Well, we see this as a longer term implication for the food ecosystem. Uh, the growth in the drugs is exponential, and we see impacts to the food, beverages, and restaurant industries. Our biopharma analysts expect drug use to grow fivefold over the next decade. And given that these drugs reduce hunger, we see impacts to the food industry over the long term. So it's still too early to see an impact now, but we think that this is a longer term risk that investors need to pay attention to yeah. and that the food industry will need to adapt to. No, it's fascinating. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, there's a, a weight loss drug out there or maybe even, hey, you can keep eating and, and, you know, like normal. But the idea that this would really impact and, of course, anecdotally, we've heard that it really does impact uh, what people desire to eat. And the, as a result, talk to us about who do you think some of the biggest losers could be? Sure. So our research shows a significant impact on consumer behavior when they're on these drugs with a significant which could have significant consequences for the food industry. Um, we did a proprietary survey of 300 patients that are on these drugs and what we found is that they cut down on the number of meals that they eat by 20 percent, the number of snacks by 40 percent and overall it results in about a 30 percent reduction in daily calorie consumption. So really we see this as having an impact across the board on food companies and also fast food restaurants. But in particular, we found a much more pronounced impact on snacks, sugary drinks, and fast food. Uh, so within my coverage, the companies that can be most affected are names like 
Hershey, Hostess, and Mondelez. You know, it's hard to, to be so happy, to hear, but I, I kind of am. I kind of go, you know what? Maybe the economy would do a little better with a little bit less market cap in those names, and maybe and maybe I'm a Grinch for saying that, but um, you do have some beneficiaries as well. Bell Ring Brands, I think they make the protein drinks along with Power Bar, if I'm not mistaken. Simply Good Foods, Vital Farms. So you think consumers might actually reach for some healthier options? Yeah, so I think what was really interesting in our uh, work is that consumers happen to be eating, or patients on these drugs are eating uh, fewer uh, categories across the board, but there were only a few categories that stood out where they're actually eating more of them. And those were weight management foods, also higher protein foods like poultry. Uh, within my coverage, the companies that have exposure there are Bell Ring Brands, Simply Good Foods. Uh, they make ready-to-drink protein shakes and protein bars. And I think that that coincides with people choosing to have a, he a healthier lifestyle when they're on these drugs. It's fascinating. Fascinating how you can inject yourself or maybe take a pill one day, and it, it really has that pronounced of an impact across every aspect of what you're taking in. On the restaurant space, I know you don't cover that, but again, maybe some risk to Wingstop, Krispy Kreme, Domino's, Sweet Green, Kava, already thought through as maybe some beneficiaries. Pam, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Pam Kaufman with Morgan Stanley. On that note, don't miss an exclusive interview, by the way, with Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks coming up tonight, 6 p.m. on Mad Money. And ahead here after a short break, we'll tell you what else is going on, you know, in the stock market. That's what we do. Plus the latest tensions between the U.S. and China, including that flotilla sent near Alaska shores. We're back after this. Welcome back, everyone. Let's get to some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Dish and Echo Star both higher after announcing plans to reunite nearly 15 years after billionaire Charlie Ergen spun Echo Star out of Dish. The merger ties Dish's pay TV satellite service and 5G network with Echo Star's satellite communication infrastructure in a combined company worth about $6 billion. Here's what Ergen, who is chairman of both, told David Faber about the stock's recent underperformance. I'm a big investor in our, in our company, so certainly I'm disappointed in, in, in our, our performance. But I also have the confidence to know that that's short term and that, that you're going to see um, the culmination of the things that we've put together. And you're going to start seeing all, all of that pay dividends for us. And um, our investors will be rewarded for that. Well, Dish shares are down 40%, while EchoStar is up about 40% so far this year. But EchoStar did surge 21% yesterday ahead of this announcement, its second best day ever. Raymond James had upgraded the stock from outperform to strong buy, uh, partly due to its strong balance sheet. They even said a deal with Dish was not factored into their base case or price target of 28. So excluding yesterday's move, the shares were only up about 16% from Jan 1 through Friday's close. There you have it. Coming up, President Biden expected to issue an executive order to limit direct investment in Chinese tech. Stephen Roach says this is just the latest step in decoupling and its timing could ultimately hurt the United States. He'll join us to explain next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Biden administration is expected to issue an executive order aimed at curbing U.S. investment in China as part of the ongoing efforts to restrict access to U.S. tech, things like semis and AI. But the chair of the House China Committee, Republican Mike Gallander, recently urged the president to go further, including limiting investments in stocks and bonds as well. It comes as China's economy continues to flounder with exports showing their steepest drop since February of 2020. Imports from the U.S. were also down 12 percent. And my next guest 
U.S. says this is classic decoupling, which could wind up hurting the U.S. and spark retaliation. Joining me now is Stephen Roach, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, and David Riedel, president of Riedel Research Group. Welcome to you both. Stephen, I'll just start with you. It sounds like you're not saying these moves are a bad idea, but just that we shouldn't think they're without risks or consequences. Well, Kelly, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, U.S. politicians have figured out that decoupling is bad. It raises costs and uh, exacerbates uh, tensions with China. So guess what? You know, they've decided to rename the concept and call it de-risking. Whatever you want to call it, the numbers are very clear. Uh, In uh, 2018, uh, at the onset of the trade war, uh, China accounted for 47 percent of our total merchandise uh, trade deficit, and now the number is 32. So we have decoupled, whether they want to call it that or not, uh, and these actions, uh, along with Mike uh, Gallagher's um, uh, ill-informed efforts to decouple uh, capital flows, I think will exacerbate problems in the United States and lead to further conflict with China. David, do you agree? Well, I think uh, you're quite right. Uh, Because of changes in supply chains and trade flows, uh, the trade flows today are very different than they were uh, pre-pandemic. And I think that that's partly political and partly economic. Uh, I think the world discovered that they couldn't rely entirely on China uh, for so many of their uh, trade routes and trade linkages. And so that's been diversified. And I think China trying to come out of the pandemic hasn't been able to find its footing because people have found other solutions to their manufacturing. I completely agree on um, stop cutting off the capital markets connections. I don't think that's a wise move uh, for the U.S. to ignore entirely as an investment option the second largest or maybe the largest economy in the world, depending on how you're measuring it. So what do you think the impact will be if we, uh, any day now, I think we're expecting this executive order to come down? David. Well, my view is that the executive order is another brick in the wall of stuff that's already been announced. This is U.S. trying to control flow of uh, U.S. resources and and knowledge and intellectual property and funding into the development of AI and chips and semiconductors and things in China. So I think this the industry already knew this was coming. They knew that this was uh, the U.S. intent was to shut off flows into those particular sectors. So I think that's pretty limited. But I think if you start to really attack some of the U.S. listed Chinese names, Alibaba and Baidu and these names are very heavily held in pension funds and other funds uh, to provide exposure to the the Chinese market. I think that would be unwise. And it doesn't sound, Stephen, like we're necessarily going to go that far. So is this intermediate step one you think is warranted? I see at the same time today we have uh, some lawmakers calling on the FCC to address potential threats in the Internet of Things from Chinese cellular modules? Well, first of all, Kelly, keep in mind the select committee on China uh, that Mike Gallagher is the chair of has no policy authority whatsoever. All they've got is a bully pulpit, and Gallagher uh, is using that very effectively uh, to moan and scream about uh, China's uh, what he calls techno-authoritarianism uh, and has um, uh, put enormous pressure on two companies, uh, BlackRock and MSCI, to respond to a whole slew of questions and other forms of um, 
uh, interrogation. But they can't make policy in this committee, and thank God for that. So finally, then, Stephen, you know, as people look at the Chinese stock market, which has been underperforming, uh, we think about comments uh, from Derek Scissors and others that, you know, China has just simply not been a good investment, a good steward of anybody's capital. Um, what would you know, do you think that's going to change or, or kind of where do we go if we continue down this path? Well, I think ultimately the stock market will be driven by the fundamentals of the Chinese economy, which are terrible right now. The trade data that was released uh, overnight, um, it's not just that exports were down, it's that imports were down much more sharply than expected, which indicates the, the weakened state of uh, internal or domestic demand. China increasingly has more of a Japanese-like problem with an aging workforce and weak productivity uh, and a debt-intensive response uh, to these problems, which you know borrows a page right out of Japan's script. So. They've got very serious problems to address, and the policy actions that they seem to be taking right now do not appear to be forceful enough to address this problem. Yeah, that seems to be widely agreed, David, that for whatever reason, maybe a lack of capacity or because they're focusing on national security or what have you, they don't seem to be pulling out any kind of big bazooka, um, are they? Well, that's right. They have held a lot of dry powder for stimulus. I think that you will see fiscal stimulus. You'll see white goods support. You've already seen support for EV sales domestically. They've realized that with the fall off in imports and exports, they really need to focus on their domestic market. Uh, Mr. Roach is exactly right that that's proven to be difficult for them to mobilize uh, that domestic demand in the face of high youth, urban unemployment and other challenges uh, throughout the economy. But I do suspect you'll see Beijing come in with some sort of stimulus here in the coming weeks. What kind of stimulus? I think it'll be to spur domestic demand. I think it'll be kinds of rebates on buying new washing machines and air conditioners that are domestically produced, uh, uh, benefits for installing solar, which is domestically produced, things like that, sopping up some of the capacity that's in their economy uh, with domestic demand. But it's an old uh, tool that they often use. And nothing, though, Stephen, that changes your fundamental bearishness on the country? Well, you know, David makes a point that those are uh, essentially the types of stimulus actions that, uh, that China has already unveiled. On Monday, they introduced a 20-point plan to stimulate domestic private consumption. But they were these um, measures were driven more by their central planners who have a micro-focus in looking at products and very narrow pieces of uh, consumption. China needs a macro-solution to its consumption problem. And I've stressed and written books for years mm -hmm. about the failure of them to really reform their social safety net for healthcare and retirement. Until they do that, Chinese consumers will save and not spend, and they'll be stuck uh, with uh, yeah. failing to deliver the consumer-led rebalancing. And the pandemic only worsened that anxiety for sure. Thank you both. Stephen Roach, David Rita. we'll leave it there for now. We appreciate your time as we await this announcement, uh, perhaps any day now from the Biden administration. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility 
To unmatch views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 